So we're just going to move on now to to management and we're going to just discuss the three top differentials in turn really so septic arthritis gout and pseudo gout so we talk about septic arthritis first i think the most important thing really in terms of the kind of the main principles when you're managing septic arthritis is trying to get a, a prompt diagnosis giving the antibiotics as soon as possible ideally after having taken the joint aspiration and adequately making sure that joint is drained so i think in terms of draining the joint, do you think that should be done with sort of repetitive joint aspirations or do you think joint washouts or does it really depend on the joint itself? It depends on the joint. So if, it, if it's a knee, you can, I mean, most people would refer to orthopedics and orthopedics generally wash out for most joints, but you can, so things like knees, you can actually, there's an argument for just having repeat aspirations until dryness with a combination of intravenous antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but in most places I've seen it's, it's more orthopedics get involved and they wash out the joint and that, that, and that kind of is a, is a quicker way to resolution but actually i think for things like knees it's kind of neither here nor there you can you can go either way as long as the antibiotics are in for deeper joints like hips or complex joints like shoulders they generally always need a washer perfect and then obviously antibiotics for you know extended duration but i think it's safe to say that it would always be worth liaising with your micro local sort of trust guidance on antibiotics but also specifically with the um, with the microbiologists involved and they can tailor the treatment based on what the joint culture has shown but usually two weeks of IV antibiotics and then four weeks of all would would be sort of the mainstay and if it's a native joint with no risk factors flucloxacillin plus or minus gentamicin would usually be sort of a common thing to use with sort of clindamycin or a second or third generation cephalosporin if, if the patient's panallergic. Pen Obviously, ceftriaxone might be something to consider if, if you think this might be a gonococcal infection. And if you are suspecting or have grown MRSA, then vancomycin plus a second or third generation cephalosporin would be would be quite important to think about. I think it's just just a note to say if if things aren't improving on the antibiotics, then it'd be worth thinking, you know, have, have we got the right organism? Is there a sort of a deep source infection that we're not addressing? And, you know, it might be worth considering other investigations like a, an MRI at that point. So if we move on to gout, so in terms of how we manage an acute gout flare, I think I think it is important to differentiate between an acute attack and a chronic chronic gout, because obviously they're mar- managed in very different ways, aren't they, Samir? And so I think in the acute setting, things that you might consider giving the patient would be non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, obviously with, with PPI protection, um, but obviously need to be a bit careful about non, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in this cohort of patients who might have cardiovascular risk factors and who might also have problems with their renal, renal function. An alternative might be colchicine, but again, that might not be appropriate, in which case you might need to think about steroids. So either oral steroids or an IM sort of depot injection, or even sometimes into articular uh, steroid injection. And then in the acute setting, you can sort of in, in really quite tricky situations where all of these aren't possible, you might want to consider an IL-1 beta inhibitor with like anakinra, which I have never come across i don't know if you have i don't know i'm not no it's, it's it's a pretty rare circumstance that it gets that far i know it's part of the guidance and, and things but it, it is pretty rare and it's pretty bad gout 
that hasn't responded gout classically responds very well to steroids generally. I, I would say so NSAIDs, thinking about the population that generally get a gout, so it'll be an older population or someone that's got a bit of alcohol dependence, unfortunately. Giving NSAIDs to them probably wouldn't be great from an, an ulcer point of view. I would say colchicine is, is what I use for most people. And so the dose of colchicine would be 500 micrograms twice a day. And I would give that to pretty much everyone. The only person that, the only kind of person I would avoid is if they've got poor renal function, specifically if it's sort of less than 30, their EGFR. And even then you can dose adjust. So anything over 60, you can give 500 twice a day, 30, 60, you can go down maybe once a day. After that, you can think about alternate days or reduced dose. But by then you're thinking about alternative. Thinking about colchicine, the side effect is that it may is diarrhea so people that get given colchicine can often get side effects of diarrhea and that historically used to be the, the much higher doses we used to give in in the early years of rheumatology now it's generally well tolerated but it can still happen and it can sometimes bring on a lactose intolerance as well for that duration of time i would some things to avoid with colchicine so if you're on a statin which most people would be thinking about the demographic you would have to avoid or hold the statin, sorry, so that it, rec it reduces the risk of myopathies. And then if you're thinking you can't give a colchicine, you can't give colchicine, you can't give NSAIDs, then you would go on to prednisolone. And dose of prednisolone would vary from person to person. Generally, it's 20 milligrams of about five to seven days. But if, if someone's you know got terrible diabetes, uh, is relatively frail, doesn't weigh that much, and maybe going down to 15 would be appropriate. So that, that, again, 20 is what they say, but you can kind of adjust depending on your judgment. I would say something that you mentioned before in terms of those of the oral treatments, if it's a monoarticular gout or pseudogoutural, we'll go on to it a bit, but the treatment there is actually quite nice to, to give an intraarticular injection because that is limited to the joint. It gives the patient pretty quick relief and has minimal systemic side effects. So let's say, for example, in our scenario, it was a knee that was inflamed because of gout. And once you've ruled out a septic arthritis, intra-articular steroid injection can, can solve it very quickly and effectively with minimal side effects. And, and obviously thinking about the demographics, you're worried about people with diabetes, have blood pressure, osteoporosis. So that would be the preferable way. If it's something like a, a big toe or fingers or polyarticular, then obviously systemic therapy is preferential to multiple joint injections or difficult joint injections. Lovely. Thanks, Emma. That's really helpful. So that covers sort of acute gout first. And then if we move on to sort of chronic chronic gout, I think the, the mainstay of treatment there is, is preventative treatment. So trying to reduce your risk of, of having acute flares of gout. And the main sort of the first line treatment is allopurinol. And you titrate that dose based on your the patient's sort of serum urate level and your trying to aim for sort of a urate of less than 360 or less than 300 in severe gout. Is that right, Samir? Yeah, generally we're quite aggressive now with gout. So less than 300 is what you aim for. And you want to try and really reduce that, the hyperuricemia to try and prevent further episodes. But generally it's, it's the main thing is adherence to treatment and, and regular monitoring, regular um, titration of the doses, which I'm sure we'll go on to. Yes, absolutely. So then sort of, I haven't really, to be, I wasn't really going to discuss much else about our allopurinol. I was going to move on to kind of second line treatments. Oh yeah, I, I, I can, I can, I can jump in a little bit. So in terms of allopurinol, so generally as long as the EGFR is normal, 
we start at 100 milligrams and then we titrate up once every month, aiming for that serum urate of less than 300. The, the thing to know about allopurinol, again, an example you come would know, is that whenever you start it, there is a risk. Of, and so for the for that duration of treatment or for the duration of your titrating treatment, you should be on some sort of gout prophylaxis. And that could either be NSAIDs with a PPI or regular colchicine. And so that, that could be for weeks, it could be from, so it's something to bear in mind. The other thing that some people often do when they come to hospital, say someone comes in with a gap flare, sometimes the allopurinol is stopped by another clinician, but it should never be stopped. It should always be continued. Thanks. Thanks, Samir. So for people who can't tolerate allopurinol, which I think is quite a tricky situation, isn't it? So for example, if they've got renal impairments, then you might consider for Buxistat as a second line treatment option. I have to say, I'd, I've not really had much experience in using for books to start. Do you mind telling us a bit more about it? And when yeah, you, sure. You... It's another xanthine oxalase inhibitor. It's a bit of a newer agent. And generally, we only give it to people that are intolerant of allopurinol. So allopurinol can be titrated carefully, slowly, or started at a lower dose, even if you've got renal impairment. So say if your EGFR is less than 60, less than 30, you can start it at 50 milligrams a day and, and increase uh, very, very slow. Generally, we don't use Fibux because it costs more probably for the NHS, but also it's it's not a, a medicine that we're overly familiar with that we would use first line. It's only if you're intolerant, so it's like an allopurinol. The difficulty there are, I don't know if you've got many more treatments after that. A couple. A couple, go on, I won't interrupt you, go on. So, I mean, I've, I'm, I wasn't going to talk about them in, in detail, but so I, I've sort of maybe just to mention that there are there are some so uricosuric drugs so ones that try and make you pee the urate so things like sulfonpyrazone or benzbromarone and then so again I've not had any experience of, of using those and then peglotokase and respiracase again not had any experience with them. So the benzbromarone is actually quite a good one when you've got poor renal function and if you're intolerant to it's a rare circumstance, and, and I think it'll be outside of the scope of an interview, but it's, all, it's always useful to, to have a few backup options with you. So most people would be good with allopurinol, and if not with allopurinol, for boxistat. And they're both xanthinoxidase inhibitors reduce the amount of circulating uric acid quite reliably. But like you said, if you're stuck and if you're getting nowhere, sometimes you can switch or add in uricosuric drugs where you're peeing out the uric acid, and they would be sulfapyrazone or Vrensbrom. You can use up you know, in a lower G EGFR, which is helpful, but it can cause liver problems, it interacts with a few things. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a standard medication. Most GPs won't be happy to prescribe on that, which is fair enough. And there are other softer things as well. And the main thing is treatment adherence. So generally, people can do lots of things to avoid having gout flares, and that's the, the dietary restrictions that, that we can speak about very briefly, but it's mainly taking the medicines. So most people, you know, won't often take the atopurinol, or won't be taking it every day, won't be titrating it, will have a flare because they're not taking a colchicine. So there's lots and lots of reasons. But if you stick to a specific regimen and you're checking adherence, you're checking engagement, then, then that's always generally the, the best way to go. And most people respond to that. That's really helpful. Thanks, Samis. So I think just to kind of mention a couple of the dietary things that you might want to advise your patients to do. So, so stopping alcohol, avoiding shellfish, red meats, high sugar drinks, and full fat milk. And then, so trying to encourage patients to lose weight, um, stopping diuretics if, if appropriate, and addressing cardiovascular risk factors. And I think that's sort of, sort of a summary of, of management of gout really mm. i think the other things that are a bit softer um which kind of are in the bsr 
guidance, but it obviously, you know, it's not going to be your first line management. Um, other than the dietary is vitamin C. It's quite good as, a, uh, as well as cherries if a, as a fruit or other alternatives. So things like lasartan or phenofibrate, they have a very weak uricosuric effect. You wouldn't add it in, but say if someone's on an antihypertensive, they're on an ACE inhibitor, you could think about switching into lasartan. And obviously looking through all of the things that we've spoken about in the history and the, and the medications, and if they're on diuretic, you know, generally a lot of people, elderly people might be on a small amount of diuretic for a bit of pitting or half failure patients on a diuretic, but do they still need it. If there has no prognostic benefit for their heart failure, do they still need it right now if they're not overloaded? Because that would really help. Thank you so much, Samir. So moving on to pseudogout. So again, I guess if we start this time with the sort of non-pharmacological -pharm treatments options for pseudogout, simple things like resting, so resting the joints, applying ice as just to dampen down the, uh, the kind of inflammatory response and splinting, and then trying to identify and treat underlying metabolic problems, which we discussed earlier. But again, moving on to kind of trying to treat it pharmacologically, I guess you could again split it into acute episodes and then chronic sort of chronic disease. So in the acute setting, it's I think it's quite similar really to gout, isn't it? So you can use yeah. sort of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, again, aspirating the joint and injecting with a intraarticular steroid injection can be very helpful. If not really appropriate, then a short course of oral steroids is is appropriate. So uh, like Samir said with the with gout, so either 15 or, or 20 milligrams for two weeks, and then you can sort of taper the dose thereafter. Colchicine, again, can be quite helpful in pseudogout, is my understanding. And again, they do mention anakinra as a possible treatment option, but I've never come across that. Generally, yeah. So, so NSAIDs, but pseudogout generally affects the older population. So colchicine would be your way forward if appropriate, otherwise steroids. So this is a very inflammatory condition, pseudogout. Similar to gout, obviously, you get really you can get raised CRP, the patient's unwell, you can sometimes get low-grade fevers, and they respond very, very colchicine or, or prognosis. And obviously, if it's a monoarticular presentation, an intraarticular steroid injection, as well as an aspirate, can really help. I would say looking for this as well, in terms of the investigations, the other thing for the pseudogout, which I don't know, I can't remember if we mentioned or not, is, is on the x-ray, you can see a characteristic chondrocalcinosis, that's cartilage that's become calcified. So that, that's quite a key sign, which can point towards a diagnosis. It doesn't always mean pseudogout, you can you know, x-ray an elderly person's knee or someone else's knee, and then you can actually sometimes see it, but that having chondrocalcinosis in the context of a hot swollen joint does help to point towards a diagnosis. Um, I don't think I did mention that, so thanks, Samir. Lovely. So, and then finally, just for sort of chronic pseudogout, so chronic calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, then you, as well as all the things that we've talked about, I think you can consider hydroxychloroquine or, or methotrexate as sort of disease-modifying agents in the long term. This is when it becomes, this is when it becomes complex. And I don't think they'd really mention it, to be honest, in, in an interview setting. But you can sometimes get chronic crystal arthritis that presents like a rheumatoid so like you get the classic pseudo rheumatoid arthritis which which is hard to treat and despite you know regular culture and short course of steroids then you're kind of reaching for alternatives and, and then the the matter becomes a bit gray because could this be a serenative arthritis that you've mislabeled and that that's when and that's when you get into the nuance of rheumatology because actually things don't all or in, into any specialty things don't always fit, fit into one specific box and that's when you have to try and treat the patient in front of you and think about the clinical context sometimes it's a bit of actually 
should we relabel this as rheumatoid arthritis, give them a short course steroids, give them, give them some methotrexate as a trial. Uh, and that often works, but it, it's a pretty rare circumstance. And it's certainly, I, I think that'd be very harsh to, to bring up in an interview. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Samir. So I think that's that's sort of the Red Hot Swell and Joint in a nutshell. Yeah. Great. I look forward to our next time. Me too. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.